What can you possibly say or do to, talk, to top something like that? I don't know. We can't top it, John, but we must make people more aware. You're right. A remake. That's exactly what I was thinking. But how? Climb on. Maybe we can work it out together. Radio Draw. This might be a remake of an episode of Radio Drome. I'm not sure, but I'm Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil. We're not recording on our normal night, so he might be a little bit weird. You're a remake. See? And <laughs> Peter can't make it tonight, so Glenn from the future, because it's already tomorrow for him, is going to set in on this on this remake episode. Is, uh, am I the original or am I the remake? I'm not sure because I got a twin brother, so I could be the remake. I could be the original. This is a very Ooh. personal subject to me. There are personal things people can do at adamandeve.com. I got to find a transition somewhere. That's you go, good. You go to adamandeve.com and you use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you'll get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Sorry, Glenn. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now, tonight we're going to look at good remakes. Now, in general, movie fans, when you say remake, almost everyone, oh, God, we're all sick of remakes. The term remake has gotten a very bad stigma to it, which I believe it deserves in, in most cases. That's not always the case. There are really good remakes out there. So tonight, we're going to look at the good ones not the bad ones. The only qualifier I'm going to throw out is I'm also going to allow for the lists we have re-adaptations, which I think are different than a remake. For instance, John Carpenter's The Thing is not a remake of the 1951 thing from another world. It's actually a more close adaptation of the actual Who Goes There novel. So I don't consider that a remake so much as a re-adaptation, which I know may be splitting hairs, but leaving out the thing which I just brought up, what is your remake that you go to that you think, this is a good remake? I have a I have a few, but uh, I guess if I'm going to boil it down to, to one to kind of start things off, I will talk about the uh, 1988 The Blob. That's a good that movie, too. That's a great movie. It's so fantastic. You've got amazing practical effects. You've got a great script. You've got very, very, very good, honest remake where they take what was good about the original movie and they did a different spin on it. It wasn't the same movie. This time, Cecil, it's some kind of germ warfare test. They f***ed up. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> it's very late had, 80s. 
Oh, it was very late 80s, but, you know, it was very the whole anti, you know, government germ warfare thing. And you had all of the classic scenes just flipped on their head. You know, you had the movie theater scene, but they did it in a different way. You had so many different elements. The diner scene where, uh, you know, Jeffrey DeMunn gets just destroyed. Uh, I mean, some fantastic effects, a really, really fun movie. It does not get the respect that it deserves, and it a lot of times is forgotten or dismissed. Kills and it should kids be mentioned, too. oh, it doesn't just kill kids. It destroys, like, I mean, it, it melted the one kid in the sewer. I mean, that was like, oh. And then the, the big thing is you're expecting, you know, Johnny Football Hero to be the, the Johnny Football Hero, and he dies, like, almost immediately. He still dies um, in the yeah. first act, I think. He dies in the first act because he goes to the, uh, he goes to pick up Shawnee Smith and, uh, the, the father's there. He does the ribbed, you know, and then he gets to the hospital and you're like, Oh, he's, Oh, he's dead. And it was just completely unexpected. Really, really just a, a cool movie. And, um, there's the movie. Now I know I agree with you that thing is a readaptation, but a lot of people still, you know, it's still called a remake. When they talk about the classic remakes, uh, horror in the eighties, They'll talk about the fly. They'll talk about the thing. They should absolutely include the blob. The blob deserves to to be up there with those. Frank Darbaugh's script. I think the direction is amazing. Kevin Dillon's fuzzy mullet is a little distracting, but you can get past that. He, he he's a well, decent action time. hero in the movie. Yeah, he, and he's he's a sympathetic you know guy. You know he's the he's the drifter that uh, you know he's the rough kid and he just kind of wants to get out of town and uh, you know but he still sticks around to help. I think he works. You, you also know? get to see a meal from RoboCop literally split in half and pulled through a tiny little opening. Ooh, yeah. That's again going back to the the special effects. The the practicals in that are amazing. I actually, you know, I'll throw my little uh thing out there whenever I talk about the blob. I got in contact with one of the guys who did the effects and he still had they had so much blob goo left over. They had milk uh the gallon milk containers filled with blob goo. And he's like, this has been sitting in my free, you know, this has been sitting in my fridge for 25, you know, 20 plus years. And he sent me a little vial of blob goo. So I have a, a little vial of blob goo that I keep on my desk. Little, little purple, uh, blob it's goo. It's just a shame. It's a shame <laughs> that sequel never got made because it pretty heavily teased a sequel, but box office failure. Uh, I would go with Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1978, which is my go to. Mm-hmm. Such a good version. I mean, the original is, uh, when you look at it, even these days is still a very dark film. It's very, uh, very political and all that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's still a very powerful film, but the, the 1978 version was just so dripping with the paranoia that, um, from the very first time I saw it, it just stuck with me. And it's a film I can go back to time and time again. It just, the, the, the performances in it, the, advances they made in the special effects everything at that moment where donald sutherland's got 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 his girlfriend in his arms and she just crumbles away it's like that moment is just absolute agony in cinematic form it is to this day one of the most um amazing examples of paranoia cinema and i think what's particularly special about it is uh how it managed to update the political edge of it from being uh what it was 
uh, with the original to what it is in the 1978 version, there's a shift in the kind of feel of how the um, the politics of it all kind of works. And um, yeah, I mean, if anyone ever says uh, there's never any good remakes, that's that's my first choice. What what an outstanding film. Technically, that one's not a remake because director Philip Kaufman says that Kevin McCarthy's cameo screaming like he was in the first film, he says that's actually supposed to be the same character from the first film and it's not a callback. Yeah, he claims he this is a sequel, not a remake, but really it's a remake. Nah, I'm calling bullshit. I'm calling mm-hmm. bullshit on that one because, I mean, it'd have to have been running for, what, like 15 years or so? Yeah, but I'm, that's why I'm just you putting know, it out there because I know someone will put it in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> that it's technically not a remake. Yeah, I, I, I look at it as being a nod back rather than it being um, uh, a clue to it being a sequel. Uh, I, I can sort of see where he might jokingly put it in, but I can't. I, I couldn't take that seriously as a um, as a sequel. <laughs> well, and what, one of the things that the '78 and I'm going to call it a remake remake does is Leonard Nimoy always played mm-hmm. good guys on Mission Impossible, on Star Trek, to have Leonard Nimoy be the freaking villain of the piece, that was a nice subversion, because if you don't know that going in, you assume Leonard Nimoy is going to be one of the good guys. And he's not. Yeah, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. He turns out to be the bastard in it. Bleak ending. And ironically enough, I think a lot of people forget about this movie specifically, but that whole pointing and... That, that has yeah. been parodied all through pop culture is not from the 1956 version. That's from this no. version. And what what an utterly terrifying moment as well. What a way to leave the audience with just shivers running down their spines. Talk about leaving you wanting more. And it's exactly the great example of one, leaving them wanting more, but leaving them with what they need. Uh, that is such a memorable moment. Oh, I love it. I, I, I am in complete agreement. Uh, I think the first one, the first one is very good, but it's also, it's very fifties. It's, it's very fifties. It feels very fifties. It just has that style, you know, where you could kind of watch it with like uh, a lot of the other fifties uh, sci-fi movies. It's, it's good. It is a fantastic uh, concept, but I think that they really refined it down and made it like terrifying in the sense. 78 version i mean it's there are a lot of people that don't even uh, like know about the 50s version the 70s version just kind of completely overshadowed it and like you said with the uh you know the pointing and that ah, you know that has just been parodied so much and again people going back to that being the 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 foundation for it where it's uh uh just completely um terrifying and really good and they've tried so many times i think that uh invasion of the body snatchers may be one of the i don't think i don't know if it's the most but i know it's one of the most remade properties never been able to quite get it right now snatchers from i think it was 96 wasn't a remake it was a was a 93 yeah the, the, if you're talking Snatcher, about the abel ferrara of one it's 93 kind of sequel it was a good movie uh, but, it, but it was not a good adaptation it was a good movie. It was not a good adaptation, but it's still it was still an entertaining movie. Well, and then there's also the horrible Nicole Kidman version, and then oh, and then God. there was the TV series, which was loosely based, which was good for about the first ten episodes, and then shit the bed in the last half of the season. Literally became a zombie movie, and it was ridiculous. Speaking of zombies, Night of the Living Dead, 1990. Nobody thought you could ever remake Night of the Living Dead and make it good. And Tom Savini, I mean, yes, he teamed up with George Romero again and John Russo. They did it right. 
Night of the Living Dead 1990 is fantastic. The third act takes a huge deviation and it goes off on its own thing. I actually don't know which one I like better. The ending of both movies is fantastic, but they are, no pun intended, night and day difference. Kick-ass Barbara or Barbara gets eaten by Johnny and Ben gets killed as an accident ending? It's, uh, they're both so good, but they're both good in different ways. I, I don't, you know what, I need to, um, I need to go back and watch them both kind of back to back because that is a perfect example of a remake where you can watch both versions back to back and have two completely different experiences. I, I just, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just say I need to, to watch them again before I can really, uh, make a decision on that because they are both very good just in completely different ways. The only real advantage the remake has is Harry Cooper's death in the 1991 is way more satisfying. I'm unapologetically a much more massive fan of the original. The remake for me was was okay, but it wasn't much more than okay for me. I, I've never been able to enjoy it on the same level as I have the original. And that, that's without me trying to be snobbish about it and all that kind of stuff. And the original is the best kind of thing. Uh, but I think it was a worthwhile effort. And I think there was um, a lot of good intent in there. It, oddly enough, I, I find it harder to forgive the flaws in the acting in the remake than I do with the original. Lame brains. <laughs> <laughs> Undeniably, Barbara in the remake is um, a much stronger character and all that kind of thing, but the portrayal seemed almost too too much forced. Tony Todd seemed... Well, he, he was playing Tony Todd. It, it never quite gelled with me. Uh, for some reason, but it's not to say that I don't think it was a worthwhile remake because I think it was definitely worth a try. But I think the significance of the original, it comes partly not just from the time that it was made, but the fact that it was so groundbreaking in multiple ways. And I think that's very hard to recapture when you've got something which is already considered to be a classic. And I think, you know, with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, for instance, it wasn't competing against something which which had quite such a high regard i don't think people tended to think of the original anywhere near as much when the remake came out as you would do with night of the living dead that it had a lot to live up to so maybe in my eyes that was possibly part of the problem in 1986 uh little shop of horrors i just i adore with the original it. ending I yes i like <laughs> i like both endings probably because i saw you know i'm so used to the um the theatrical ending it's it's tough to say because when you've seen something so many times and you love it and then you see like what the original ending was, it's like, OK, it is really good. Would I feel the same way about it? You know, had I had seen that ending when I was younger? I don't know. I do enjoy it. I like the the basic planet killer. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That original ending is very much a 50s monster movie ending, isn't it, though? Oh, Absolutely. You know, I mean, it, it is the the pinnacle of 50s monster movie ending. I love it. Uh, I think that it is uh, it's fantastic. I think that um, uh, the animatronics on Audrey 2 are just outstanding. I love the songs. Because he's the mean I love, green motherfucker um, space. They got nominated for an Oscar for crying out loud. You know, Rick Moranis was terrific. Um, it just I, I really love it. it. It's so charming and funny. And, uh, good, I mean, God, um, Steve Martin is, is terrific as the, uh, I as the dentist. Think, I and, almost think Bill Murray steals the movie in his one scene. 
Oh yeah, where he he's the, the, the like Jack uh, Nicholson role. The, he, yeah, he wants him to keep you know doing. Yeah, he's he like a weird keep, tooth, uh, you know, tooth digging into his teeth or something. Yeah, it's so funny, but yeah, he totally like plays that up and just has a lot of fun with it. And you know, no, come on, you know, don't, I don't need Novocaine. Don't Nova stop King, now. You know, yeah, and he throws them out. He's, yeah, sick. Because <laughs> he wants the people to be miserable, and and oh, uh, it's just terrific. So yeah, Little Shop of Horrors is just uh, is just great. I um I'm not huge on the original Corman, surprisingly, but uh, that could also be because I had seen the remake so many times before. Like I am one who like. There have been movies where I've seen the remake first and then went back and saw the original. And uh, even though I had seen the remake so many times, went back and saw the original, I was willing to admit, you know, absolutely, the, the original is better, um, even though I was more familiar with the uh, the remake. But with this, I think that the remake was so strong. I don't know, the, the original... Just, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was, you know, it was what, 1960, Corman, I, I believe? I believe it was 60 or 61, yeah. Yeah, so it just, uh, it just didn't have the same level. Now, I have to confess, I haven't seen the original, but, um, I do have, uh, quite a fondness for the remake. Not least because I've, I've worked the stage show on a couple of occasions. Uh, so when I think of Little Shop of Horrors, I think of the remake because it's the musical version. Quite something when you've got a full band and um, you know, a stage show version of it. It's one of those films that is uh, very much a stage show on film. It has all the kind of attributes of a stage musical and um, just in film format. And it is, it's just wonderfully camp. And I, I mean, it, nobody can think of that movie and not think of Steve Martin as the dentist, you know, and that is like you guys say, it's just, um, such a fantastic and wonderful and over the top kind of adult sort of entertainment as well. You know, you've got all this kind of weird stuff going on in it. And I think that's one of the charms about the story as a general thing, you know, is it is, it does have that adult edge to it as well as the kind of cheesy sort of teen kind of level fun so it's as movies go it's the it's a movie package. that earns its pg-13 and, rating oh absolutely absolutely you know because some of the stuff that goes on it is kind of dodgy as fuck <laughs> to say the least yeah i mean just just a wonderful wonderful movie you know from what i can see at the original what i have seen of the original which is only a very very small amount it's always struck me as a much more attractive film David Cronenberg's The Fly. Uh, what a hell of a remake that was. You know, you're going from a, a really cheesy, camp, old-school-style horror. Yeah. <laughs> Vincent Price, man. Oh, I know, I know. But uh, what David Cronenberg did with it, uh, regardless of whether you think the original is the better one or the remake's the better one, they are two films with very, very different visions, what they're trying to do with the, exactly the same story. That is the epitome of uh, why you do remakes. It's to mix things up and, and have something new to say. I've never been a big fan of the Cronenberg world. I don't think it's a bad movie, and it's incredibly well made. I don't know. I just That one just never became a favorite of mine. I, I don't know why that one just doesn't do anything for me. To some extent, I think it's kind of, um, it's typical Cronenberg in that it's not always as enjoyable as you would imagine. Not in the overt way that some horror films tend to try to be. It's a very uh, serious and and kind of brooding kind of atmosphere. There's nothing camp about that movie. I mean, like the moment when 
Brundle kind of he, he pukes up onto the donut and then suddenly realizes, you know, kind of like uh, how far he's gone in this transformation. That's not a moment that you're supposed to look at and go, oh, wow, that's really cool. That's a moment you kind of go, oh, my God, what has happened to this person? I like it so much is because it, it's not afraid to go into those darker places. It's not afraid to... Uh, like with a lot of Cronenberg's films, exploring the darker side of, of of humanity and um you know and the whole kind of body horror you know shifting humanity, changing humanity via the technology in this case. But great special effects, a great story, a lot of atmosphere, and a very compelling high level of drama that you didn't get in the original. I think that was that was quite something. The Mel Brooks produced 1986 Fly. Yes. He actually uh, was on set one day while they were filming. They were like, hey, you know, do, do, you know, let us put you in the film. And he was like, no. He's like, I, I fully support this. I want to do this. He's like, but I am not the kind of person that you put in this kind of movie, even as a cameo. You know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, major respect for him for, uh, you know, not not just uh being a background character or something and uh really just seeing that uh you know seeing mel brooks goofy mel brooks who i love just <laughs> popping into a movie that's like this and especially uh it was the scene where they went to um where it was like they were talking to the guy who um who was trying to help gina davis I, I can't remember what his name was. And it just, it would have, like, having him around, it would have cut a lot of the tension out. Thank you. Yeah, they, they okay, didn't you know, do for, it. For but, Mel uh, Brooks produced movies that people don't realize. He, yeah, I agree. He wouldn't have fit in this. He would have fit in Solar Babies, though, which he also produced. Oh, yeah. He should have absolutely shown up in Solar Babies. I mean, the, the name alone. <laughs> it sounds like a parody. I adore The Fly. I think that uh, it's phenomenal. I think it's um absolutely one of the remakes that does it right. It's completely different from the original. I like the the original very much. It's uh, it is a great way of like it, they did the whole storytelling in reverse where you had uh, it opened, you know, with the, the scientist dying and then it was really more of a kind of a a a police movie where they were like kind of uncovering like what really happened and they're finding out about he was doing these uh experiments and uh you know what led up to and then finally the help me scene with the remake they started off and they showed the whole medical procedure and it went you know in your traditional timeline and uh it just uh it showed his descent into madness and his descent into you know evolve you know turning into uh this amalgamation of two creatures and um a human-sized fly and it's terrifying i mean it is it is bloody and gooey and disgusting and uh just absolutely deserved all the recognition it gets for the effects there was someone recently i did a video on uh, the sequel and they were talking about how like uh oh god remakes you know the 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 effects in the fly movies is so fake it's not good like in transformers and i'm like are you like i'm like my first thing was like all right yeah that's the only thing i was like my first initial reaction was this has to be a troll but then i went and i looked and i'm like no they just they're they're a young dumb kid who's been watching nothing but CG and thinks that that's the way that stuff should look, I guess. And, uh, yeah, you can't, you can't argue or talk to somebody like that. <laughs> With Vincent Price being in the original Fly, what about the House on Haunted Hill remake from 99? Now, I like the original House on Haunted Hill. I want to be very clear about this. I know what sacrilege I'm about to commit. Actually like the 99 remake of House on Haunted Hill better. 
I talked to William Malone, the director of this one, a little bit. We'll hear from him in a minute, but I don't know why the, the remake works better. I actually like the fact that it's real ghosts this time. I love the 1999 House on Haunted Hill. The cast is great. The effects are great. The angle that they went with everything was great where uh it's just, uh you know, here's this insane asylum and it's the ghosts have taken over the asylum. Uh It really is. Uh, it's fun. It's fast. Just a very neat movie. I think that it is definitely one of the better remakes and one that does not get uh, enough attention, probably because a lot of people, uh, for some reason, even though I'm pretty sure House on Haunted Hill did the best. Oh, no, it did, it did a mo- killing at the box office. But more people I see talking about Ghost Ship and 13 Ghosts than I do about The House on Haunted Hill, which is so odd. Because those are bad movies like, and this is a good one. Right, you know. Now, my now I will say, um, because they were all the Dark Castle movies where they were remaking uh, old William Castle movies. Thirteen Ghosts had phenomenal production behind. Not that it. you could see the it. Go- well, that was the thing. If if you got the DVD, they had all of this stuff where they showed the history of all the different ghosts, and I'm like, all of this effort was put into it, and then you give it to a, you know a director editor combo. That just did the old slice and dice, and you couldn't see anything. Although I will say the um, the guy split in half is still the guy amazing. Guy split in half is amazing, uh, that, but I, I don't want to bitch about bad remakes. So House on Haunted right, Hill. Right, but I'm just saying. But no, I'm just saying that it's very odd to me that anymore, even though House on Haunted Hill did better, more people talk about the other two that are bad. Which I guess is kind of that uh, that negativity bias thing where it's like, well, something good, you know, kind of flies under the radar, even though it was a hit, where people want to focus on the bad so uh but yeah the house on the hill if you haven't seen it definitely check it out if you have seen it uh watch it again because uh, i think it still holds up it's still terrific i haven't seen the 1991 i have seen the original but one thing that actually did interest me um about what you just said was the whole idea of one has the ghost and the other has, is like a fake out and uh, there's a few films which have done that kind of stuff and i guess it depends on your kind of taste in the story and stuff like that but um the, the the fake out is kind of um, a fun one, and I think it was what was it? Um, April Fool's Day, I think it was. Did a similar sort April, of thing. Yeah, nineteen eighty six April Fool's Day was a <clears throat> a lot of people at the time said that the that April Fool's Day, and I hate to. This is one of the reasons I hate remakes in general. I hate to have to differentiate between the good ones and the bad ones by year. But the nineteen eighty six April Fool's Day, which has its own shitty remake, that was considered a cheat. Critics at the time called it cheat that they thought the cheat was actually cheating the audience and i'm like no because (laughs) if you were paying attention they were they were signaling pretty loudly the original april fool's day was clever the remake said we're doing away with all that clever stuff uh i know and that's the thing wasn't it that twist was just um so much fun and, uh, you know, it's one of those things, I, I guess some people, when you do that kind of stuff, feel like they uh, genuinely feel like they've been cheated. We're going to hear from William Malone a little bit about House on Haunted Hill and how it came about. 
Was this something you pitched? Were, were you approached with it? Because it, it had to have been kind of daunting to take on what is a veritable classic and a Vincent Price movie, no less. How did this movie, what was the genesis of the 99 remake? The whole project really started, well, I had done uh, several things for uh, for the producers, uh, including, um, you know, Weird World, which is a pilot for a TV series. And then also I had done several Tales from the Crypt episodes, which the producers liked very much. And they approached me. It was uh, Joel Silver and Bob Zemeckis approached me and said, we, we have bought the catalog to uh, the uh, William Castle films, and uh, we want to do a remake of, of House on Haunted Hill. Now, I had already been thinking for some time that I wanted to make a ghost movie, because so, at that point, there hadn't been any ghost movies in a very long time, and I thought that that was like a really ripe genre. So I said, yeah, I definitely would like to do it. The episode that I did an episode of Tales from the Crypt called Only Skin Deep, and um, they, which they really just, the producers loved that episode, and they wanted to hire the same writer. It was a guy named Bob uh, Dick Beebe and um, you know I had worked with Dick briefly on the show but just you know, sort of in passing so I got together with Dick and we talked about things and, and he went off to write a, write the script and I think he took six months to write the screenplay when he turned it in Dick was a lovely guy but and a really fine writer but I think what happened was I he, he had a little problem with the with drink, I'm afraid. And, I, I, and the script really looked like he probably writ, wrote the whole thing in the last three days uh, before the d- deadline. Studio got it, and the producers got it, and they, they were going to shelve the project. And I said, I said, everybody, wait, just give me a chance. So I got together with Dick, and I said, look, let's go watch the original House on Haunted Hill because his script sounded nothing like the original movie. So we went and watched it, and I said, let's take notes of everything that we like about the original movie and incorporate it into our film. So so we basically took the basic plot, really, of the original film and just sort of tried to update it as, as much as we could. And I, I said, you know, for myself, I said, what, what is it that I didn't like as a kid? I mean, I loved the film as a kid, but what... Was there anything I didn't like? And I thought the only thing I didn't like was a kiss. I was disappointed that there was no real ghost. I said, let's throw in the fact that there, you know, everyone thinks there's no real ghost, but there genuinely are. So that was our, the, the premise that we took. So Dick and I went off and wrote a draft of the script, which we turned in, and we both wrote it together. It was probably about 50-50. I wrote most of the scary stuff, and I think Dick wrote most of the uh, dialogue with the uh, characters and stuff. That was the way I remember it. We turned it in, and we got the green light. They said, yeah, we, we love this. We want to make it. So that's how we, we were off and running. What, did you run into any difficulties making it like jeffrey rush was a perfect vincent price analog in this fom k jensen was great you even had the little cameos by like lisa loeb did you run into any problems while making the movie or while casting it or because i mean i know fom k jensen was not the biggest name then but she became huge after that so did ali larder when you're making first of all what you need to know is when you're making your first studio film which i'd made features before but this was the first one for like a major studio. When you make a studio film, uh, as a director, you really generally don't have a lot of say in who the cast is because they they have their people and movie studios are basically where the tail wags the dog and it's not even the guys at the studio who decide this it's the distribution department says we can sell such and such a territory if you get so and so in it and so and so and that's the way it goes and as far as the cast goes you know I had made a list of people that I wanted to play the uh, Vincent Price role and fortunately for me at the top of my list was uh, Jeffrey Rush 
So when they said we were thinking about Jeffrey Rush, you know, of course I was like ecstatic. The other cast members, I didn't really have a lot to say about that. Um, uh, for the most part, they were handed to me, and uh, which was fine because they were all really great actors, and I enjoyed working with all of them. The only other cast member that I brought on board was Jeffrey uh, Jeff Combs, you know, because I'd worked with him before, and they were you know totally happy with that. My original thought on the movie, originally when they told me to. That they wanted to make the film, they pitched it to me. The studio did as straight up horror film. In other words, it was I was going to make it like the Haunting, the original Haunting Robert Wise movie. So that was an entirely different casting process in my head, anyway. And uh, one of the people that I wanted to play the Pritchett part was John Hurt. Now you can imagine that would have been a very different movie than than the one we made. Honestly, he was the only character that really annoyed me. I think Chris Kattan just, I, I don't know, he played it too jittery and, I mean, I felt like it was part of a Scooby-Doo episode, like, yoinks, the ghost is coming! <laughs> a lot of people like his character a lot, and I, I, you know, I thought here's what happened, was when we were about two or three weeks away from shooting, I started getting script pages in uh, which I had nothing to do with, uh, and there was from writers from Friends, <laughs> TV show Friends, and I went, "What the hell is going on?" Tried to fight it, and then it became very clear to me that what what happened was that the studio wanted to make Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and not a, a, a straight up horror film. You know, that's an entirely different movie. So that's really what I tried to do: is make it where the scary stuff was scary, and the funny stuff was funny, and uh, and and take that approach. Because anything else, I think, would have been a disaster. Honestly, Jeffrey Rush looks like he's having a ball in this. How was he to work with? Jeffrey Rush, I can't say enough good things about Jeffrey Rush because the first, actually the first day I met him, we we were uh, over at the producer's house and uh, he came over and and the first thing out of his mouth, he says, well, I was just over at the New Art Theater and, and I was watching The Black Cat, Boris Karloff. I said, you're my man. <laughs> you know? So he was definitely into it. And, I, I, and at the time, you got to remember, he was going to the Academy Awards, I think, for Elizabeth, um, uh, Shakespeare. Shakespeare and Lover, uh, I think that was it. Anyway, he was off to the Academy Awards. And, you know, you're making these movies where you're you know, nominated for Academy Awards. I mean, no, you know, <laughs> no harm to my movie, but why would you want to be in House on Haunted Hill? He goes, well, I'm rather tired of playing Men in Tights. <laughs> So uh, he was very happy to be in it, and he did a great job and was very – I'd always see him off in the corners rehearsing his lines. He took it very seriously, but he did uh, he did seem to have quite a lot of fun making the film. The, the movie was 50-50 received when it came out. I, I remember – I didn't see this one in the theater. I, I, I was kind of getting pissed off at horror films at, at the time when this came out because of all the, the scream knockoffs and all that that had come out. Horror films had just kind of been passe to me. So I remember reluctantly picking this up on DVD and going, holy crap. This is surprisingly good. And then, and then I watched the original again and I went, I actually think I like the remake a little bit better. It's more energetic. I mean, some people might get pissed off that the ghosts were real. I actually liked that. Yeah, well, I, you know, like I said, I wanted to have a, yet another uh, another twist. And as a kid, I, I was disappointed. I said, wait a minute, there's no real ghosts here. You know, and I, I understand why they did it originally. And, and uh, you know, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, I think, a, a, a good exercise in, you know, making that kind of film. So, And certainly a lot of ghost movies happened after that. Ironically enough, they remade The Haunting right around this time as well. And that was pretty terrible. Well, what happened? Yeah, actually, we started making House on Haunted Hill first, and then 
Amblin found out that we were making that and said, oh, well, let's make uh, a haunting. And because they had a lot more money, they were able to get it out first, which I was rather disappointed in because I think our, I think House on Haunted Hill would have done even better. It was it was huge already. I mean, it did very, very well, but I think it would have even been a bigger hit had, had that uh, had the haunting not come out first. Well, now, with House on Haunted Hill 99 being one of the better remakes out there, it had a sequel that wasn't so good. Do you have anything to say about House on Haunted Hill 2, which I believe you were not involved with at all? I was not involved with it at all, other than it was probably my idea. I remember mentioning to uh, Steve uh, Richards over at production company, I said, I don't understand why you guys aren't making a sequel to this movie. It's done so well. And I, and then, of course, shortly thereafter, I hear they're going to start making a sequel. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't have anything to do with it. And uh, it was shot in, uh, I don't know, Bulgaria or Romania or one of those places. And I think that that hurt the film, you know. But, you know, I, I don't want to comment on anybody else's movies, you know. Well, no, House on Haunted Hill being such an early Dark Castle film, do you think that that helped really shore up Dark Castle as a contender for a while? Because I remember when 13 Ghosts came out and Ghost Ship and Gothica and all that, people were really considering Dark Castle as as a real contender. And I don't think I'm blowing smoke up your ass to say House on Haunted Hill is one of the reasons. Well, thank you. I mean, I would hope so. I mean, you know, certainly House on Haunted Hill was the first Dark Castle movie, and and I think that probably had it failed miserably. That probably that might have been the end of Dark Castle. But no, it did very very well, and you know, was able to launch the company, and and they they continued on making movies. So, do you think looking back at it now, eighteen years later? I mean, first of all, it's hard to believe it's been eighteen years. But when you look back at it, eighteen years later, is there anything you'd change at the time? Like you know the CGI, I'll admit it's a little bit dated, but here's here's the thing, and this this is this is actually the one thing that annoys me about the critiques of House on Haunted Hill. There's only two CG shots in the entire movie. There's no not tons of CGI in that movie. Right, but I, I just shots. I remember the ghost, just the, the the one that's coming out at the end. I remember going even at the time going, eee. with the exception of like I say, I think there was like maybe it was. Possibly three shots. There was. I was not happy with the ending of the movie, and uh, I, I made that clear to the producers. Shrugged me off. But regarding the CG, there, I'd say 99% of the, the shots and the effect shots were practical effects, and they were com- they were composites, but they were practical effects. It was all smoke and uh, you know various elements put together and stuff. So the only I'm, I'm trying to think. The only effect shot is there's a shot on the staircase. Melissa Marr, and there's a shot, I think, of the rope burning, which is a tight close-up, and I think the only other effect shot, CG, is at the very end with the uh, the ghosts in the bat thing at the end, whatever it was, and that, that which was faces were talking and stuff, and that was uh, not a shot I was very happy with. Originally, that stuff wasn't in there, the, the last sequence in the film. How did you want to end the movie? Basically, that they get chased up there, and the the ghosts turn back into the sort of horde of of uh, maniacs, and you know, and one of the maniacs opens the you know just because they they're just so crazy, they opens the the one doorway that the, they're able to get out onto the roof, and that was the ending. How much did you have to do with the final edit of the movie? Because I remember there's some deleted scenes on the DVD, one of which being deleted creates a huge continuity error that until I saw the scene, I went, what the hell? And then there's there's some shots in the trailer that aren't in the movie. Are are those things you cut specifically or did like the promotions well, the, department um, just say, ah, it's a cool were, shot? Those were cut by the, 
the, the studio, the um, I should say the producers, because the uh, I had cut, I had shot the whole uh, zombie sequence, and they called me up and said, "We think zombies are old-fashioned. We should take this out of the movie." And I said, "I think zombies are going to come back hot and heavy, and they belong in the movie." And uh, but you know, they were paying the bills, so we cut it. Because I remember um, that creates a huge continuity error because he runs down the hall and he's got his jacket on, and then he runs around the corner in the final cut, and well, his jacket's it's, missing, it's and they're covered in dirt. Like, Wait a minute, did I miss something? Yeah, you did. <laughs> you missed the zombies. <laughs> it was a cool sequence when I saw it on the DVD too. I just was always wondering why it wasn't in the film. And then also, there's a like, um, there's a sequence which is in the trailer. You can see it briefly in the trailer, which is Bridget Wilson is in exploring the house. Now it just cuts to her going down the stairs. Originally, there was probably another two or three minute sequence of her walking down the hallways before she gets to the basement, and there's some kind of spooky stuff going on. And one of them is this weird surreal painting on the wall and that becomes um uh sort of alive as she's like walking past it and which i always really liked that and that got cut so well so where does house on haunted hill 99 sit with you with all of the movies you've done on your tv work where is it in your filmography do you think as how proud of it are you i'm proud that i survived the experience <laughs> I'm proud of it in in a lot of ways. Actually, I'm proud of the film. It's just it's very hard for me to watch it just because you know it was a very stressful film to make and it was just a lot of stuff going on and the horror was off camera. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I'm I'm proud of that film. I mean, it's probably like number four on my list of film favorite things I've done. Like I said. I'm I'm weird in the fact that I actually like it better than the original, which also then begs the question, what if a film is plagiarized, but the plagiarized ripoff is better than the original? You can knock this off your Josh Hadley meme card, Reservoir Dogs. It's a remake of City on Fire, whether Tarantino wants to admit it or not, but it's better in every aspect. The direction is better, the action is better, the dialogue is better, the cast is better, even the, even the cinematography is better. It's still a remake of City on Fire, but Reservoir Dogs is the better version. I had uh, I had only seen it uh, Reservoir Dogs for years, and then eventually saw City on Fire, and it's like, oh, oh wow, it's the exact same movie though. <laughs> It, it is, but it really is done infinitely better. So yeah, it's, it's kind of such an oddity. Now I know, you know, Tarantino is, uh, has always, he's never shied away from, uh, saying that he borrows and takes and, you know, and, and homages and whatever he wants to call it. He, he does have a way of taking something and making it his own. And even though it, it is pretty much wholesale lifted from something else, he still manages to do it and do it in his own way and make it feel like his own thing, even though it's, uh, it is, uh, you know, a remake or, or, you know, large parts are lifted from other movies. It's, uh, Reservoir Dogs, absolutely a remake, a remake that literally blows the original away. It's, it's the archetypal Quentin Tarantino. I think everything about City on Fire is, um, what Quentin Tarantino's about that and his dialogue, you know, you, uh, the one thing that Tarantino does really well, you know, when you strip away all of the homage is, uh, is dialogue. There is a supreme confidence in just about every sentence that he writes. And I think that's 
where I, I know he gets a lot of stick. Everybody says he, he always lifts from this place, that place, and the other place. And I'm as guilty as anyone else for saying that. But when it comes down to it, the thing that gives him the identity is the the words that come out of his character's mouth. Every one of them is um, speaking words straight from his mouth, pretty much. But it does make for a quite um, an, an interesting and dynamic form of storytelling, I guess, you know, and um, that that is where his strength is. It, it's it's what he gets his characters saying. It's not it's not in what happens on the screen. It's what comes out of those characters mouths. So, um, yeah, when it comes to Reservoir Dogs, I think um, it's such a um, such a cool film apart from anything else. But it is it, it's almost poetic. The way that everything is kind of structured in, 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 in um, what they say and how they say it and all that kind of stuff. And because we hadn't seen much of that up until that point, and, and I, I think fire it was, at that point, I don't even think had a VHS release, so it was pretty obscure in America. Pretty obscure, point. yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, he really kind of um, took that that um, structure of the film threw it back out there and wrote his signature right across it. And uh, it's arguable about, you know, is it plagiarism or is it um, his interpretation? Uh, With that one in particular, I would say it's pretty much 50-50 of both. What about when a remake has absolutely nothing in common with the original? I like, okay, the critic in me says the original, I believe it was 60s Cat People, is the better film. But I enjoyed the 1982 Cat People a hell of a lot more. I mean, come on. You got Natasha Kinski and Malcolm McDowell and sex turning people into cats and morphing tech and great special effects. And the original was really more of an exploitation title over a slow character piece. But the 1982 film is just a straight-up exploitation film using the title almost too literally. I like the 82 version better. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Like the cat people, it just, it just works in the 82 version. It's so, um, it's a little too lack- literal, but yeah, but it's, yeah, I, you know, I have a soft spot for exploitation and Natasha Kinski really sexes it up and it's just, I, I don't know. It all gels and it, it works. Uh, the, the, the music, the effects, the, uh, the, uh, the actual freaking, Wildcats that they used in the movie. Those are real uh, Panthers, people. Yes, that is a re- you know real Panthers for crying out loud. Try doing that now. I do very much enjoy uh, Cat People more than the uh, the original. Uh, Let me in is quite a good good one uh, to discuss. Uh, that's the original was uh, Let the Right One In, and it was a foreign language film. And then Let Me In was the American um, version. And, and this is something we've seen you know, quite a bit of, particularly in uh, the last, you know, 10, 15 years, taking a foreign language film, say like um, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and then them remaking it in, in an American language version. Let Me In was one that uh, met with an awful lot of, shall we say, criticism, because it was perceived to be a bit of a dumbing down. You know, um, some of it was a bit of snobbery. You know, why can't they watch the original language version? And some of it, it was, um, you know, oh, they've dumbed it down in, in this way, that way, and the other way. There was a lot of themes in the original that, um, shall we say, were very edgy. Um, there was a kind of androgynous, almost sexual relationship between these two young characters. Young in quotes for one of them. Yeah, and... um in Let Me In, it's it's kind of different. There's a relationship there, but it's not 
borderline sexual. But the biggest difference is um, with the original, you don't really get the certainty that you get with the American version. It's uh, very much a film of ambiguity and um, guessing. Uh, and that mystery is kind of what drives it. But what I like about the American version is it, it's kind of much more of a out-and-out monster movie, if that's your kind of thing. You know, it's doing something very different with the with the characters, even though it's changing very, very little in terms of visuals and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of look at it as being a very good example of taking an idea and uh, just rejigging them slightly to give a very, very different flavor to the film. So I kind of look at both of those films and I, I kind of get it's worth watching both of them because you get a very different experience out of the two of them. I don't think either version is necessarily better or worse. It's kind of one of those cases of what are you looking for? So I, for me, that's a fascinating one. I adore the original. I think the original is a uh, is a brilliant piece of uh, filmmaking, and I did not care for the remake. Uh, I don't hate it. Uh, I know there, like uh, Glenn said, there's a lot of film snobbery about it. Uh, I just don't like it. I think that uh, they lifted a lot of the same scenes. They were shot very similarly. Uh, they did, I felt, dumb it down. They uh, changed the ages of the characters to appeal to an American audience, and uh, I think it took a lot of the punch out of what the movie was and uh i just um i i did not particularly care for it so uh i think that the uh the remake is just or the, the original is is just an amazing uh completely unique style of vampire film the remake just kind of drained a lot of that out to help it to appeal to it a more american audience which is a lot of times what you know remakes are they're trying to uh, to take especially on foreign films they're trying to make it more accept accessible to an american audience by putting in english getting rid of any taboo subjects but, but I you think have that to admit there was a lot at stake for them to do this they had a cross to bear no, I'm, I am just so done with your bad puns. Cecil, I'm actually kind of surprised you didn't bring up the Stephen Summers mummy. Oh my god, yes. I love the Stephen Summers mummy. I actually do too, but not? I, I don't consider that so much a remake as more of a, let's just do a mummy movie as an Indiana Jones film. Well, they, they did, like, going back when I did my video on the mummy, I went back, you know, and, and went over the, the original, uh, Boris Karloff mummy. They took, they took names and elements from the original, but it really is a completely different movie. It is, it is very much more, it's more of an Indiana Jones movie than a mummy movie, but that's why it works. It's swashbuckling. Brandon Fraser is awesome. His, his like charisma is just through the roof. Uh, Rachel Weiss is terrific. The effects, they were, there was like, you know, 90 CG, but a lot of it was still great because they worked really hard to do stuff that was different. Highly enjoyable movie. And I am also surprised I didn't, uh, I didn't think about it. So yeah, yeah, mummy, mummy is terrific. And, and I like the original. But I, this is a case of where, uh, it's not so much that I think the remake is better than the original. I think that they are two completely different movies. Give me Dawn of the Mummy any day. Rise and kill. Rise and kill. <laughs> There's a couple I wanted to just bring up briefly. 
there's the couple of, well, Roger Corman had a bunch of remakes that he made in the 90s of his own films, like Humanoids from the Deep. He remade A Bucket of Blood as the Death Artist. He remade Wasp Woman, Haunted Sea, things like that, that are all worth it. Then there is the 1986 Invaders from Mars from Toby Hooper, which we did a whole episode on, the Toby Hooper canon films. There is There is also some films that people don't realize are remakes, such as Heat, the Michael Mann film. That's a remake of a Michael Mann TV movie called L.A. Takedown. Films like William Friedkin's Sorcerer. That's a remake of a film. Twelve Monkeys is a remake of a French short film. You've got those kind of good remakes. And then I'm pretty sure Cecil's going to come down on my side on this one. The pilot for the 1990 Alien Nation TV series is a remake of basically Kenneth Johnson and Rockney O'Bannon's script for what the movie should have been. The two-hour pilot is basically a remake, a good remake of the movie before Gail Ann Heard wrecked it. Yeah, and Gary Graham is just awesome. So he he's a large part of uh you know what makes the uh the the TV series work, but I enjoy the movie, but oddly enough, this is a case of where they took it to television and they expanded upon the themes and everything and made it better. Like the the movie, if the movie did well and would have continued as a series, it would have never been as good as the TV series was. Yeah, according to Rock Neil Bannon, Gail Ann Hurd took out anything interesting and just made a buddy cop film where one of the cops happened to be an alien. Uh, you can kind of, it does kind of feel like that. Uh, I never saw the TV series, but I did see the film. I don't think the TV series aired over here. But uh, maybe I should check it out. The TV series is fantastic. The TV series takes all of the cool ideas that the movie hinted at, and it makes them better. Now, the 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 five TV movies that came in the later 90s that followed the TV series, those weren't so good. But just the TV series in and of itself was great. I thought the mini movie, the the movies were, they weren't as good, but I think that they were still good. I think if you're a fan of this series, it was a nice way to be able to continue with it and it's actually kind of an to unofficial get some... second season if you will it really was it's just that every uh you know every episode was a very long episode yeah but it and it gave you know the series some closure that we really didn't get with uh you know the uh canceling of it and you do get to see a very well not very young but a very early in her career a- angela Bassett as a regular on the tv series as a as a tv news newscaster Oh, that's right. Yeah, she, that was one of her really early roles was on the Alien Nation TV series. She was the, uh, the regular newscast lady. I like Angela Bassett. I, I love Angela. Hell, her and Brad Dura for one of the reasons Critters 4 is freaking awesome. I was just gonna say that. I'm like, I'm like, how many people know that Angela Bassett, you know, and, and you know, Brad Dura winning Angela Bassett was it? Well, Brad Dourif, I love Brad Dourif, but Brad Dourif's been in a lot of lower budgeted films and whatnot but when you think of like angela bassett people don't think critters <laughs> the critters in i mean space unless it's one, no unless less. it's me or you then you know we think but you know i'm, I'm looking at i have a, i have two critters on my desk so remakes aren't necessarily bad yes i'd say probably there are more bad remakes than there are good remakes remakes can improve on the original or take them in another direction. Who knows if we'll ever get that Tim Burton Plan 9 from Outer Space remake that he tried to make in the late 90s. Or even before that, Dan Aykroyd and John Candy were teaming up in 1986 to remake Plan 9 from Outer Space. 
Just imagine what either of those remakes could have been. And, you know, this is before Tim Burton went crazy and lost all of his talent, and this is before, well, Dan Aykroyd was still on cocaine and still at the peak of his talent. So you just have to wonder, could a Plan 9 from Outer Space remake be any good? I mean, yes, there is one technically now, but this is really more along the lines of Mummy 99, and yeah, this is an action zombie movie now. It's just got some elements from Plan 9. And it's not a bad movie, but... It's not as fun as the original. Glenn, since you were in the future and you refused to give me lottery numbers, I don't know why I'm letting you plug your stuff, but <laughs> where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at cynicalcelote.com or on YouTube at SlumpyMan101. And Cecil, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at uh, goodbadflicks.com as well as goodbadflicks on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch. And Cecil is now on 1201beyond.com as well. You can get all the Good Bad Flicks stuff there. So you go to 1201beyond.com. You can also contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to watch some of the good remakes we talked about and leave some comments and email if good remakes that we might have missed or if you think we're crazy. Because I know a lot of people are probably not going to like the Cat People 82 remake, but screw you, you're wrong. To the events you have just witnessed Similar events in cities across America Events which for a striking resemblance To the ones you have just seen begin occurring Subsequent to the events you have just witnessed Unsuspecting jumps from Maine to California Made the acquaintance of a new breed of flytrap And got sweet-talked into feeding it blood The Southland was their terrible will Finding death who would feed them their Money in this place, but whatever they are, you don't be the 
Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.